It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Andrew Jackson, born March 15, 1767, and died June 8, 1845, was the seventh President of the United States, serving from 1829 to 1837. My name is J.T. Fusco, the writer and producer of the Giants of History podcast, reside right here on the west coast of the sunny state of Florida in the good old United States of America. The America that Andrew Jackson was born into, it was going through a tremendous paradigm shift, and it was also highly charged and volatile. Now, the French and Indian War had just ended in 1763, in which the French had ceded vast majority of its North American holdings east of the Mississippi to Great Britain. And this solidified Great Britain 
as the now dominant power in the eastern part of North America. And soon after this war ended in the year 1764, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, which was a tax on molasses inside the American colonies, and it was one of the first acts passed by Parliament in an effort to offset the cost incurred as a result of the French and Indian War. And also in the following year, 1765, Parliament passed both the Quartering Act, which mandated that colonists actually house British troops in their home, as well as the Stamp Act, which levied a tax on virtually every piece of paper good that was used in the colonies. And this is when we can begin to hear the now famous rally cry of no taxation without representation. And it began to be heard, and the rumblings of revolution were starting to be felt all over the colonies. And in quick succession after this came the Boston Massacre in 1770, the Battle of Lexington and Concord in 1775, and finally the American Colony's Declaration of Independence from Great Britain in 1776. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to one another and to assume among the powers of the earth... And this was the America that painted the background for pretty much the first 10 years of Andrew Jackson's young life. And it was a virtual powder keg which finally exploded and the American Revolution erupted. Andrew and Elizabeth Jackson were Scotch-Irish colonists who emigrated from Ireland to the United States in 1765. And they most likely landed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then they would have had to have pushed through south, through the Appalachian Mountains, and they eventually settled in the Scotch-Irish community of Waxhaws, which was an area a few hundred miles northwest of present-day Charleston that straddled the North and South Carolina borders. And Andrew Jackson had two older brothers, Hugh and Robert, and they were both born in Ireland, and they made the trip with their parents in search of a better life inside of the American colonies. But tragically, just weeks before Jackson was born, his father died unexpectedly at the young age of 29. And it is said that a snowstorm hit on the day of his funeral, and the pallbearers carrying his father's coffin, they drank so much as they walked to the church that they briefly lost the body along the way. And a few weeks after this tragic loss, on March 15th of 1767, which was a Sunday, Andrew Jackson was born, and he was given the name of his father, whom he would never meet. The exact birthplace of Andrew Jackson has been debated pretty much for the last 250 years, as no one knows for sure if he was born in North or South Carolina, given that that part of the country in 1767 had yet to be surveyed. But Jackson himself stated later on in his life that he was born in South Carolina. But most historians, when they study this statement, agree that he probably floated this idea simply for political gain. Jackson's childhood was mostly dominated by God and war. And his mother took him and his brothers to the local Presbyterian meeting house every week. His formal education was very, very sporadic at best, and he mostly studied under Presbyterian clergy members. Most historical accounts of his childhood, they paint the picture of Andrew Jackson being a very rough and very physical kid, and he was always wrestling and he was always tangling up with other kids as a result of a very short and uncontrollable temper that he used to display. But his temper, of course, would become famous, and it would be used in large part throughout his life to get what he wanted. 
When the Revolutionary War broke out, Jackson's whole family became involved in supporting the colonial effort for independence. By 1778, the South was a large focus of the war, and there were a number of bloody battles that were taking place in Georgia and in and around the Carolinas. And this would set up the first of a series of tragedies that would befall Andrew Jackson in his youth. Jackson's oldest brother, Hugh, who was about four years older than Jackson, he died in the Battle of Stono Ferry against the British. And this was the first family member taken from him by the British. Jackson and his other brother, Robert, who was about three years older than he, acted as couriers for the army during the war. And this was common for boys their age at the time, as they knew the surrounding countryside like the back of their hands, and they could travel efficiently between regiments delivering messages. In April of 1781, when Jackson would have been just 14 years old, he and his brother were captured by the British, and they were taken as prisoners of war. In a now famous and formative incident in his childhood, while Jackson was held captive, a British soldier by the name of Major Coffin asked the young Jackson to kneel down and clean his boots. Jackson, even at this young age, refused to subjugate himself in this manner, and he told the British officer that he would not do it. The officer, as a result of Jackson's defiance, pulled out his sword and he slashed at Jackson's head with it. And Jackson put up his arm to block the blow, but the sword cut him anyway, and Jackson would carry the scars from the event on his arm and head for the rest of his life. This same British officer, after slashing at Jackson, smashed his sword over Robert's head, knocking him to the ground and leaving a gash in his skull. Neither of their wounds were dressed, and they both became sick as a result from the infection. At the same time, they both contracted smallpox while in captivity. Both Andrew and Robert suffered greatly at the hands of the British while they were prisoners. Amazingly, their mother somehow secured their release from prison, and they had to travel the 45 miles back to Waxhaws on foot and on horseback from where they were being held. But during the trip back to their home, Robert died from the wounds he had received in prison, specifically the gash in his head. And this was the second family member that the British took from Andrew Jackson. Soon after the death of his second brother, Jackson's mother supposedly contracted cholera while nursing prisoners of war in Charleston. She died just a few months later. She was buried in an unmarked grave, and for the rest of his life, Jackson would try and find the location of his mother's grave, but was unfortunately never able to. His mother was now taken from him as a result of the war. So here we have Jackson, just 14 years old, and he's now an orphan in the world, and he blames the British for taking the lives of his two brothers and his mother. So here we can pinpoint a primary source of the deep and profound hatred that Jackson feels for the British. And two things happen as a result of this. The first is that Jackson now feels like he has nothing left to lose in the world. Everything is already gone. The second is that his life is now given a purpose, which is to seek revenge on the British for all that they took from him at such a young age. And this forms a very potent combination in the young Jackson. He has nothing left to lose and a mission in life. This is a tremendous insight into his psyche. This would be one of the main driving forces for him as a military commander. And he would get his chance to face down the British again in 1815 and pay them back for what they took from him at the Battle of New Orleans. 
1783, the American Revolution comes to an end and a new chapter is born in the United States' history, that of an independent sovereign republic. But life in Tennessee goes on and Andrew Jackson is now an orphan and he is forced to forge his own way in the world and find his place in history. After the Revolutionary War ended, Jackson bummed around trying to find his place again in the world and he worked in a saddlemaker's shop for a time and he did some other odd jobs before he started to study law. And he found the law suited him and he pursued it further and was admitted to the bar in 1787. He moved to Jonesboro, which was at that time the Western District of North Carolina. In time, this area would become the Southwest Territory, which was the precursor to the state of Tennessee. And Jackson's pugilistic personality was a benefit to him in the rough and tumble world of frontier law, where most cases that he was engaged in involved assault and battery and land disputes. And from his legal efforts, Jackson began to make a little money, which afforded him the opportunity to refine his manners a bit and dress himself well. We need to mention here that Jackson had also spent a brief period of time in Charleston prior to pursuing law as a profession. And he had come into a little bit of money, perhaps from a small inheritance from a grandparent or the sale of his mother's property after she passed. And he used this money to travel to Charleston, potentially the first of one of his many efforts to find his mother's grave. It was during this brief sojourn in the city that he developed a taste for fine-cut clothing, whiskey, and gambling, which would follow him for the rest of his life. So here we find Andrew Jackson, around the age of 21, dressed well, his manners becoming that of a Tennessee gentleman, and beginning to forge a successful career as a lawyer. But underneath this polished exterior was still a very wild, fiery-tempered, and aggressive frontiersman. This marrying of the gentleman with the frontiersman would prove to be a killer combination for Jackson as he started to make his way in the world. His success as a frontier lawyer earned him an appointment as prosecutor, both in the Western District of North Carolina in 1788 and then in the territory south of the Ohio River in 1791. And he was just in his early 20s at this point, but he was starting to see that he had a knack for getting what he wanted simply by projecting personal strength. And he was a tall man at six foot one, and he weighed about 140 pounds, so he cut somewhat of a wiry figure. And most of us think of Jackson as a man with this shock of white hair. But in his younger years, his hair was red, which I think is an interesting coincidence because this would mean that three of the first seven U.S. presidents had red hair, the other two being Washington and Jefferson. And Jackson was also described as having penetrating blue eyes, which he would stare at someone with, unblinking. And he usually did this if he wanted to make somebody uncomfortable in negotiations. In June of 1796, as a result of his success as a prosecutor, Jackson was elected as a delegate to Tennessee's Constitutional Convention. And in June of that same year, when Tennessee was admitted as the 16th state in the Union, Jackson was elected as its first official to serve in the House of Representatives. The following year, in 1797, Jackson was elected a U.S. Senator from Tennessee as a Democratic-Republican. The Democratic-Republican Party was the party founded by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the 1790s, and this was in opposition to Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party. The party came to power in 1800 with the election of Thomas Jefferson as president, and it dominated the American political system until the 1820s. 
The primary tenets of the Democratic Republican Party was the support of states' rights over a strong central government and the belief that the yeoman farmer was the backbone of the United States and the principle of republicanism as a whole. But within a year of his being elected as U.S. Senator, Jackson resigned his office. When he was asked why he resigned from such a revered position in government, Jackson was noted to have said that he hated spending the best hours of every day for the last seven months in a red Moroccan chair. In 1798, he was appointed a judge of the Tennessee Supreme Court, where he served for the next six years until 1804, when he retired to live the life of a country gentleman. Jackson was able to retire from his formal legal career at around the age of 37, as a result of a successful business that he formed 10 years prior in 1794 with his friend and fellow lawyer, John Overton. This business was formed primarily for the purposes of buying and selling land. Flipping land, if you will. And here we start to see the darker elements in Jackson's personality in regards to his view of Native Americans. And the reason I say that is because some of the land that Jackson bought and sold during this time was land that had been reserved by treaty for the Cherokee and Chickasaw nations. Jackson was aware of all of this during the exchanges, and he chose to ignore these treaties for the sake of his own personal profits. These events proved to be simple foreshadowing of what was to come in his future engagements with the Native American people. In 1804, right about the time that Jackson retired from the Tennessee Supreme Court, he bought a 640-acre plantation just outside of present-day Nashville. Jackson named the plantation the Hermitage, and he later added another 400 acres or so, bringing the full plantation to over 1,000 acres in size. And this is where his life as a planter and merchant begins. And with it, another controversial aspect of his existence, his role as a slave owner and master. The primary cash crop grown on the Hermitage plantation was cotton. And at this time in America, cotton was big business. For most of its history, the production of cotton fibers into clothing and other goods was a laborious task as the fibers and the seeds, they needed to be separated by hand. But in 1793, inventor Eli Whitney created the cotton gin, and with the advent of the cotton gin, the cotton industry boomed. The cotton gin was a machine that could efficiently separate cotton seeds from fibers, which allowed for greater productivity levels in cotton production. But the improved efficiency of production called for greater levels of cotton cultivation, and the demand for cotton workers greatly increased. This led to a dramatic increase in the growth of slavery, particularly in the southern states, as planters, like Andrew Jackson, sought to make their fortune in the booming industry. When Jackson acquired the Hermitage in 1804, he had nine slaves. By 1820, he had as many as 44, and soon that number shot up to 150 slaves working the Hermitage plantation, making Jackson one of the planter elite. Throughout his lifetime, Jackson is said to have owned up to 300 slaves that called him master. And despite some historians putting forward the idea that Jackson was a humane slave owner, giving his slaves ample food to eat, decent quarters to live in, and not breaking up families, he also could be ruthless with his slaves who tried to escape, as there is one specific example where he offered a $50 reward for an escaped slave and an additional $10 bonus for every 100 lashes given to the slave up to 300. 
Now, 300 lashes could easily kill a person from infection if not treated properly. And it would certainly traumatize someone for life. Jackson saw his slaves as personal property, though, and he dehumanized them to a degree. This is one of the darker streaks inside of Andrew Jackson and a large part of the controversy that surrounds him today. Nevertheless, the Hermitage would, for the rest of Jackson's life, be his sanctuary and his shelter from the military and political storms that awaited him in his future. Understanding Andrew Jackson's military career is essential to understanding Jackson's ultimate rise to the presidency, as it was his success as a leader of men on the battlefield that made him president of the United States. Jackson's military career began in 1801, when Jackson was appointed commander of the Tennessee militia with the rank of colonel. Within one year of this appointment, he would be elected major general of the militia with all men under his command. And this is an important event as it speaks to Jackson's raw and true leadership ability. Jackson had gone up against a man named John Sevier for the generalship. Sevier was a formidable foe. He was 20 years older than Jackson, had been a brigadier general in the army, and he fought in the American Revolution. He also happened to be the first governor of the state of Tennessee. But Jackson, having no real formal military training at this time and no real battlefield experience, was elected to the generalship over Sevier. And again, this says something about the raw leadership ability of Andrew Jackson and why he was so successful as a military leader. At this time, he was 35 years old. And this would not be the last time that Jackson faced Sevier, as the two were bitter rivals personally and professionally for many years. At one point in 1803, Sevier would insult Jackson's wife, Rachel, calling her a bigamist. An enraged Jackson challenged Sevier to a duel, which he accepted. The feud escalated to the point where the men met and had guns pointed at each other, but somehow the conflict was resolved prior to the bullets flying and bloodshed. It would ultimately be Jackson's service in the War of 1812 that would catapult him to national fame. The War of 1812 had been a war a long time in the making. And it is sometimes called the Second War for Independence against Britain, as it sought to resolve many of the issues that still lingered after the American Revolution. After the Revolution, Britain put in place a series of trade restrictions which impeded America's trade with France. And the British were also supporting the armed resistance of Native American Indians against westward expansion. There was also concern that the United States wanted to annex Canada. But then there was the issue of impressment. The British Royal Navy still did not recognize naturalized American citizenship, and anyone born a British subject was still seen as British. The Royal Navy was thus capturing and searching American ships for those seamen that they saw as deserters, and then they forced recruited American seamen back into British service. Approximately 9,000 American sailors were impressed back into the Royal Navy in the years following the American Revolution. Essentially, This was viewed as kidnapping, and it led to tremendous tension between the United States and Britain, especially during Thomas Jefferson's presidency. Impressment was also a clear insult to Americans, as it highlighted Britain's view that the United States was weak and it could not defend its own ships and sailors while at sea. American honor was now at stake. And for all of these reasons, on June 18, 1812, the United States once again declared war on Great Britain. 
The War of 1812 lasted almost three years, and its main battle theaters included the frontier border of the United States and Canada, the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area, and then the Gulf Coast in the south, primarily around New Orleans. Some key events that occurred during this war are formative in the history of the United States. The War of 1812 is the only time in American history that Washington, D.C. was ever captured and overtaken by an enemy nation. And during their occupation of the city, the British burned a good portion of the public buildings within the capital. But one of the most legendary events that occurred during the war is the birth of the United States national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. One night in September of 1814, as the British Royal Navy bombarded Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor, a 35-year-old lawyer named Francis Scott Key was held captive inside of a British gunboat named the HMS Minden. Key witnessed the Battle of Fort McHenry through a window on the ship, and every time a shell or a rocket exploded, he could see the American flag that was flying above the fort in the brief flash of light. But once the shelling stopped, he would have no idea how the battle turned out until dawn. When the sun rose, he looked back out the window, and he saw the American flag still flying high. Inspired by what he saw that morning, Key wrote the lyrics to what would become the Star-Spangled Banner. In the early stages of the war, though, in northern Alabama and Georgia, the Red Stick Creek Indians, encouraged by the Shawnee Indian chief Tecumseh, were attacking white settlements in an effort to repel American settlers from their lands. Tecumseh had been the force that led to the Fort Mims Massacre, where 400 white settlers were slaughtered by Native Americans. This event brought the United States into what we now call the Creek War, and none other than Andrew Jackson was called in to command the U.S. forces and put an end to the Creek Indian attacks. Jackson went at the Creeks with a fury, and in March of 1814, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, the American forces, which numbered roughly 3,000 men, killed nearly 1,000 Creek Indians. Reports say that not a single Indian surrendered in the battle, and that every one of them had to be killed to get them to stop fighting. The Battle of Horseshoe Bend ended the Creek War. The Creeks now had a name for Andrew Jackson, which was Jacksachula Harjo, or Jackson, Old and Fierce. It was around this time that Jackson also earned the nickname that would stick with him for the rest of his life. His men, witnessing him in battle and in camp, said that he was as tough as a hickory stick, and so he came to be called Old Hickory, highlighting his rough constitution and his general determination. In the aftermath of the Creek War, the Creek Nation was forced to cede 23 million acres of land to the United States government in what became known as the Treaty of Fort Jackson. This land was a good portion of present-day southern Georgia and virtually all of central Alabama. Once the treaty was signed, Jackson turned his sights and his army southwest, and he headed into Louisiana and toward the city where Andrew Jackson would become an overnight American legend the Crescent City at the mouth of the mighty Mississippi River, New Orleans. The Battle of New Orleans was the final major battle of the War of 1812, 
and it is arguably one of the greatest military victories in United States history. Toward the end of the war, the British knew that if they could capture New Orleans, that they would have access to the interior of the United States via the Mississippi River. So if they took the city, they could potentially win the war. The Times, 21st of February, 1815. Expedition against New Orleans. Yesterday, a mail from Jamaica arrived, and authentic accounts have been received of the success of our first operations against New Orleans. The expedition sailed from Negril Bay, Jamaica, on the 29th of November, and arrived off the coast on the 9th of December. The enemy had previously abandoned a position near Mobile Point. The shipping then proceeded to Pines Bay, and on the 13th of December anchored off the Isle of Candelaria, near the mouth of the Mississippi. The enemy had assembled a flotilla consisting of six gunboats, which it became necessary to capture or destroy before the troops could be landed. The naval part of the operations was commenced by an attack with the boats of the fleet on the ship Louisiana, a floating battery carrying 30 guns, and an American flotilla consisting of five gunboats and two schooners, all of which were either captured or destroyed after an obstinate resistance in which we sustained a loss of about 90 men killed and wounded. Captain Lockyer of the Sophie, who commanded the boats, was among the latter. We then landed part of the troops, 2,000, about 10 miles from New Orleans. The enemy, about 7,000 strong, was posted with the Mississippi on his right and a wood on his left. In the night of the 21st December, a schooner of 16 guns dropped down the river and commenced a heavy fire upon our men. The enemy attacked our force of 2,000 men with his 7,000 on the 22nd of December, but after a sharp action, was beaten in all directions. We lost 250 men and some officers. Colonel Stoven was wounded in the neck. Captain Harris, aide-de-camp, was killed. After this success, we landed some guns and destroyed the schooner in short time with red-hot shot. General Pakenham now joined the army with reinforcements, and the whole of our troops were landed and took up an advanced position, but it became necessary to land guns to construct batteries, and by the end of the month we had got 30 guns in battery. The enemy were under General Jackson, about 12,000 strong, and we were not more than three miles from New Orleans. General Lambert landed with two regiments from England on the 29th of December, and on the 1st of January a heavy firing was heard by a vessel which left the coast on that day. Another account, brought by the mail, says that on the 5th of January our artillery were breaching a commanding fort, which the troops expected to storm that night. On the fall of which New Orleans must surrender, as it is incapable of making any defence against the force which was advancing against it. In these attacks, the 85th and 95th regiments were those which had suffered most. A fleet of transports had sailed from Jamaica with the 40th regiment and the necessary bread and rum. The British thus advanced on the city in early January of 1815, with a force of a thousand soldiers supported by a large portion of the Royal Navy fleet. The British fully expected the battle to fall in their favor, coming up against a ragtag group of militiamen, poorly organized and poorly led. But on January 8th of 1815, when the British marched on the city, they were extremely surprised at what they found. The American army, led by Andrew Jackson and made up of soldiers, militiamen, Choctaw Indians, and volunteers, was ready for them. The British battle plan quickly collapsed, and the American forces took full advantage. What resulted was one of the most incredible and surprising military victories in history. When the smoke finally cleared, 
the British suffered over 2,000 casualties. The American forces under Andrew Jackson's leadership only suffered 71. This was a stunning defeat for the British, and it is said that the news of the American victory hit the nation like a thunderclap and immediately vaulted Andrew Jackson to national stardom. From the Evening Post, New York, New York, February 7th, 1815. Sir, at such a crisis, I conceive it my duty to keep you constantly advised of my situation. On the 10th inst, I forward you an account of the bold attempt made by the enemy on the morning of the 8th to take possession of my works by storm, and of a severe repulse which he met with. That report, having been sent by the mail which crosses the lake, may possibly have miscarried. For which reason, I think it the more necessary briefly to repulse the substance of it. Early on the morning of the 8th, the enemy, having been actively employed the two preceding days in making preparation for a storm, advanced in two strong columns on my right and left. They were received, however, with a firmness which it seems they little expected, and which destroyed all their hopes. My men, undisturbed by their approach, which indeed they had long anxiously wished for, opened upon them a fire so deliberate and certain as rendered their scaling ladders and fascines, as well as their more direct implements of warfare, perfectly useless. For upwards of an hour it was continued with a briskness of which there have been but few instances perhaps in any country. In justice to the enemy, it must be said, they stood it as long as could have been expected from the most determined bravery. At length, however, when all prospect of success became hopeless, they fled to confusion from the field, leaving it covered with their dead and wounded. Their loss was immense. I had at first computed it at 1500, but it is since ascertained to have been much greater. My loss was inconsiderable, being only seven killed and six wounded. This was in action on the line. Afterwards, a skirmishing was kept up in which a few more of our men were lost. Such a disproportionate loss when we consider the number and the kind of troops engaged amongst, I know, excite astonishment, and may not, everywhere, be fully credited. Yet I am perfectly satisfied that the account is not exaggerated on the one part, nor underrated on the other. The enemy, having hastily quitted a post which they had gained possession of on the other side of the river, and we having immediately returned to it, both armies at present occupy their former position. Whether after the severe losses he has sustained, he is preparing to return to his shipping, or to make still mightier efforts to attain his first object, I do not pretend to determine. It becomes me to act as though the latter were his intention. I have the honor to be, most respectfully, your obedient servant, Andrew Jackson, Major General Commanding. P.S. A correct list of my killed and wounded will be forwarded to you by the Adjutant General. The War of 1812 would formally end with the Treaty of Ghent, which was actually signed in December of 1814, a few weeks before the Battle of New Orleans. But by the time news reached the city, Jackson had already devastated the British Army. The war is largely considered a draw, with no clear victor, and all pre-war borders and properties were restored. But the war did solidify a strong national identity for America, and a wave of patriotism swept over the country. Andrew Jackson, at the age of 47 years old, was now a bona fide American hero. The final major events of Andrew Jackson's military career occurred a couple of years after the War of 1812 ended. In 1816, the Seminole and Creek Indians were again attacking and clashing with white settlers in Georgia. At the same time, many runaway slaves were escaping bondage 
and they were finding refuge south of the Georgia border in Spanish Florida. President James Monroe thus called upon Andrew Jackson one more time. He was given the order by Monroe to terminate the conflict in Spanish Florida. Monroe's orders were famously vague and unspecific, so that he could not be blamed for what he must have known would follow. From the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, April 14, 1818. You will repair with as little delay as practicable to Fort Scott and take the immediate command of the forces in that quarter of the Southern Division. The increasing display of hostile intentions by the Seminole Indians may render it necessary to concentrate all the contiguous disposable force of your division upon that quarter. The regular force now there is about 800 strong, and 1,000 militia of the state of Georgia is called into service. General Gaines estimates the strength of the Indians at 2,700. Should you be of opinion that our numbers are too small to beat the enemy, you will call on the executive of the adjacent states for such an additional militia force as you may deem requisite. Jackson thought the best way to accomplish Monroe's order was to depose the Spanish governor and seize Florida as a whole. And that's exactly what Jackson did. The Newburn Sentinel, 11th of April, 1818, Saturday, page 3. Generals Gaines and Jackson's instructions. Washington, March 31st, Department of War, 16th of December, 1817. Sir, on the receipt of this letter, should the Seminole Indians still refuse to make repatriations for their outrages and depredations on the citizens of the United States, it is the wish of the President that you consider yourself at liberty to march across the Florida line and to attack them within its limits, should it be found necessary unless they should shelter themselves under a Spanish post. In the last event, you will immediately notify this department. I'd be honored to be and see John C. Calhoun. As soon as he put down the Seminole and Creek conflict in Georgia, he entered Florida with his army. He captured Pensacola, overthrew the governor, and he took Florida for the United States. This created an international incident as Jackson had invaded a territory belonging to a country that the United States was not at war with. The Times London International Opinion on the Invasions of Florida. General Jackson has published in the American papers what he conceives to be a justification of his attack upon and capture of Pensacola. The defense of the general was merely this, that because the Seminole Indians were not prevented by the Spaniards from committing outrage upon the territories of the United States, he... General Jackson took possession of Pensacola, where he does not even pretend that the Seminoles were ever sheltered. What becomes then of a secret resolution of the American Congress enabling their executive to seize the Floridas, whenever it should so please them, seven years ago? The offence of the Seminoles are not described as being older than two years standing. No official declaration has yet appeared on the part of the American government. In addition, he executed two British subjects that he found to be supplying the Indians that he was fighting against. Calls for Jackson's censure were rampant in Monroe's administration. But John Quincy Adams, who at this time was Secretary of State, he supported Jackson's invasion of Florida, and he parlayed the move into the Adams-Onis Treaty, in which Spain formally ceded Florida to the United States. For his service, Jackson was named Military Governor of Florida, and served for nearly all of the year 1821. In the early 1820s, we find the United States continuing its ascent onto the world stage and really starting to assert itself in the world. 
A solid American identity had been forged after the War of 1812 with Britain. Prior to the War of 1812, if you would have asked somebody where they were from or who they were, they would have said, I'm a Virginian, or I'm a New Yorker, or I'm from Massachusetts. But after the War of 1812, specifically the Battle of New Orleans, people were now saying, I'm an American. And the United States introduces its defining foreign policy statement with the establishment of the Monroe Doctrine, which formally declares the American continent closed to further colonization by foreign powers. Just like that, the United States tells the world that they are no longer welcome to any land on this side of the Atlantic. Domestically, slavery is still a hotly debated issue between the northern and southern states, and the Missouri Compromise highlights this divide further when it passed in 1820. There are roughly 10 million people living in the United States at this time, and the country has grown to 24 states by the middle of the decade. Andrew Jackson, since his victories in the Creek and Seminole Wars, and especially his victory at the Battle of New Orleans, is arguably one of the most revered figures in the country at this time, if not the most revered figure. The technology of aquatint engraving, which allowed artists to reproduce colored images, was starting to spread across the country, and pictures of Jackson standing victorious at the Battle of New Orleans circulated the country for years after the event of the Battle of New Orleans, solidifying his status in the minds of the people. As a result of this popularity, Jackson is elected a U.S. Senator from Tennessee for the second time, returning to the Senate nearly 25 years after he first resigned from office. And this is the second longest gap in service to the chamber in history. Soon after this, the Tennessee legislature, following the election process at the time, nominates Jackson for president in the upcoming 1824 election. Now, once Jackson's name is introduced as a possible candidate for president, a lot of the established politicians in Washington get very nervous. They know that Jackson is beloved by the people of the country, and they also know that he has a real chance of winning the office. And they fear this outcome very much. They see Jackson as completely unfit for the presidency. They believe that he is still at his core, a backwoods frontiersman and a savage who has a hair-trigger temper and resorts to violence way too quickly. Most in Washington also believed that he had displayed a complete disrespect and disregard for the laws of the land and the Constitution itself when he took Florida. By the time the 1824 election came around, the Democratic-Republican Party was the only functioning party in national politics, leading to what many called at that time the era of good feelings, as there was no fighting during the period of one-party government. Nominating caucuses thus raised the candidates at this time, and they put forward in the 1824 election four names. Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, and William Crawford. The election results told an incredible story. Andrew Jackson had received the most electoral votes of all the candidates, and he had also, in a time when universal male suffrage was the norm, received the most popular votes with nearly 43% of all those eligible to vote in the entire country backing Jackson. However, 
Because he did not win a majority in the Electoral College, the final vote for president went to the House of Representatives to determine. Now, this event is key, as it would set the foundation for a lot of political friction in the future. The choice for president was now between Andrew Jackson and the then Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams. William Crawford and Henry Clay were out of the race at this point. But Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House at this time, and he held a tremendous amount of political sway in the chamber. When the final votes were counted, the House had elected John Quincy Adams as the sixth president of the United States. But interestingly, soon after the election results were announced, Adams nominated Henry Clay as Secretary of State, which was traditionally seen as the stepping stone to the presidency. Andrew Jackson, as well as many other politicians and people, were furious, stating that Adams and Clay had secretly made an arrangement. If Clay backed Adams and he won, then Adams would return the favor by appointing Clay Secretary of State. From the Raleigh Register, February 15, 1825. A transaction so base that it laid the axe at the very root of the Tree of Liberty. He proceeded, quote, to give a brief account of such a bargain as can only be equaled by the famous Burr conspiracy of 1801, unquote. And then goes on to state, first, that for some time in the past, the friends of Mr. Clay had hinted that they, like the Swiss, would fight for those who would pay best. Second, that the overtures were said to have been made by the friends of Adams of the Department of State to Mr. Clay for his aide to elect Mr. Adams. Third, that the friends of Clay informed the friends of Jackson of the overture, and hinted that for the same offer from Jackson's friends, that they would close with them, but none of the friends of Jackson would descend to such a mean barter and sale. Fourth, that Jackson's friends did not believe the contract would be ratified by the members of the states who had voted for Clay, but that it was the writer's opinion from the first, quote, that men possessing any honorable principles could not, nor would not, be transferred like, like the planter does his negroes, or the farmer, his team and horses. But he says, quote, contrary to this expectation, it is now ascertained to a certainty that Henry Clay has transferred his interest to John Quincy Adams, unquote. And in consideration of this abandonment of duty to his constituents, it is said, and believed, should this unholy coalition prevail, Clay is to be appointed Secretary of State. Jackson referred to the suspected collusion as the corrupt bargain. Most voters believed that the people had spoken in the popular vote and they wanted Jackson as president. And it was clear from this time that he was now the man of the people and this wave of support would prove powerful just four short years in the future. Jackson then resigned from the Senate for the second time in 1825 and immediately set his sights and went to work on a crusade to win the White House in the next election of 1828. In addition, Jackson also set his sights on Henry Clay as a new political enemy. The election of 1828 would be one of the dirtiest and biting elections in American history. It was the rematch of the 1824 election, with Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams facing off once again. But after the corrupt bargain took the presidency away from him in the election of 1824, Jackson wanted to ensure that that didn't happen again. Jackson enlisted some key figures in his campaign effort, specifically Martin Van Buren and John C. Calhoun. Van Buren, whose nickname was The Little Magician, was a very skilled politician and good with strategy. John C. Calhoun was already vice president alongside John Quincy Adams, 
so his siding with Jackson was a big win in and of itself. Van Buren went right to work, and he put together and ran what is commonly considered the first modern political campaign. Van Buren revived the old Republican Party, and he renamed it the Democratic Party, which restored party rivalries in national politics. This Democratic Party was very similar in beliefs to the Democratic-Republican Party of John Quincy Adams, in that it still believed in republicanism, states' rights, opposition to a national bank, and agrarian interests. But this political party had a completely different feel to it, as it was seen as being truly representative of the common man and the sovereignty of the people, as opposed to the interests of the Northeastern, well-moneyed elites. This type of democracy would come to be known as Jacksonian democracy, as he was, at this time, the hallmark of the truly self-made man who had come from nothing and through strength, will, hard work, and determination raised himself to the near pinnacle of power. The contest between the two parties became very personal and nasty, and the mudslinging is what really marks the election of 1828. As was custom at the time, neither candidate personally campaigned, and their teams and political followers did all the communicating. Jackson was immediately attacked by Adam's side, being called a slave trader, a murderer, and a blustering savage. But the attacks hit a new low when Jackson's wife was attacked personally and accused as a bigamist. And if there was any one button that a rival could push that would cause the volcanic Jackson to erupt, the subject of his wife was it. When Jackson had first met his wife, Rachel Donaldson Robards, around 1790, she was already married to another man, but had separated from him as a result of the man's jealous rages. Jackson and Rachel fell madly in love, and soon after, Rachel received a letter from her then-husband stating that a divorce had been granted. Thus, Jackson and Rachel, believing her to now be divorced, married in 1791. But as it turned out later, the divorce between Rachel and her prior husband had never been finalized, meaning that she had in fact committed bigamy by marrying Jackson. And this was a huge deal at this place in time in history. The divorce ended up being finalized in 1794, and she and Jackson were married again, but the damage had been done to her reputation, and Jackson would spend the rest of his life defending her honor. Jackson loved her. She was his touchstone, and to him she represented everything that was good and pure. But as soon as someone questioned her honor, he became unhinged. In a famous event in Jackson's life, he killed a man in a duel in defense of his wife's honor. In 1806, Jackson and another man named Joseph Irwin placed a bet on a horse race. When Irwin's horse came up lame, he refused to pay Jackson. Their argument escalated to the point where Irwin's son-in-law, a man named Charles Dickinson, became involved and he insulted Jackson's wife. Jackson immediately challenged Dickinson to a duel, and the two met at 7 a.m., one of the mornings soon after. Dickinson was an expert marksman and a famous duelist, and Jackson knew that he was outmatched in the faceoff. So Jackson allowed Dickinson to fire first, hoping the haste would throw off his aim. Dickinson fired at Jackson and thought he missed, as Jackson did not move or flinch. Dickinson then, under the rules of dueling, had to stand there as Jackson still got his chance to fire. Jackson leveled his pistol at Dickinson, and he shot him through the chest, killing him. It turned out afterwards that Dickinson had in fact shot Jackson, hitting him square in the chest as well. 
But Jackson did not allow the shock or pain to show, and he still calmly took his shot. When asked about how he was able to still shoot Dickinson after being shot himself, Jackson famously said, I should have hit him if he had shot me through the brain. Jackson would carry the bullet with him for the rest of his life, as it was so close to his heart that it could not be removed. The insults at Jackson and his wife continued throughout the election of 1828, most of the accusations true in all honesty. Famously, Jackson's opponents called him a jackass during the election as well, which he turned out to favor as he thought the animal was tough and reliable. The donkey would forever after be associated with the Democratic Party. But Jackson's side reciprocated the mudslinging, insulting Adams when they said that he, while he was serving as minister to Russia earlier in his career, had acted as a pimp for the Tsar of Russia, bringing him women for sex, and also that Adams had used public funds to buy gambling devices for his home in the White House. In the end, when all of the votes were cast and counted, Jackson had won the election by a landslide, carrying 15 of the 24 states and 56% of the popular vote. This election was also marked by record voter turnout, due in large part to male suffrage being extended even further. It was clear the American people loved Andrew Jackson and had placed him squarely on the seat of power as the new president of the United States. He was called the People's President. But bad news soon followed the election results. Rachel Jackson, Andrew Jackson's wife, had been severely traumatized by the insults that she suffered personally during the election's mudslinging. She had trouble coming to terms with the fact that all across the nation, her honor and her integrity had been questioned and that she had by many been branded a scarlet woman. On December 22, 1828, around 9 p.m., just before Andrew Jackson would begin to make his trip to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration, Rachel Jackson died suddenly of a heart attack. She was buried on Christmas Eve just a few days later. Jackson was heartbroken as well as enraged. He blamed John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay and the rest of their supporters for his wife's death. And so once again, just like when he was younger and his immediate family had been taken from him by the British, we find Andrew Jackson once again with nothing to lose and a new purpose in his life. The fight against his political adversaries and the saving and delivering of those he considered all the family that he had left in the world, the American people. The America that Jackson came to power in was a country undergoing rapid change. Farming was giving way to a larger industrialized economy. Canals, roads, and railroads were starting to tie the country together. Factories and manufacturing were growing at an incredible clip. The cotton workforce was just about double what it had been just 10 years prior, and slavery was still the driver. And immigration was also rising steadily, mostly from Great Britain and Ireland. The age of Jackson began on March 4, 1829. At his inauguration, the then 61-year-old Andrew Jackson became the first president to take the oath of office on the east portico of the U.S. Capitol. And following this, he was also the first president to open up to the public the presidential inaugural ball that was held at the White House. This party ended up being reflective of all that was to come during his presidency, specifically his first term in office, which would be very controversial, contentious, and a wild span of time. The crowd that came to the inaugural ball consisted of poor people in homemade clothes 
as well as the political elite. The crowd became so large inside the White House that people were standing on chairs with their muddy shoes, and numerous pieces of decoration were broken in the melee. In an effort to lure people out of the White House, attendants had to drag the punch tub to the lawn. This was the event that earned Jackson another nickname that would stick with him, King Mob, as this party was a reflection of his rowdy populist support. Andrew Jackson believed that the presidential office derived its power from the people themselves, given that everyone elected the president of the United States, as opposed to congressmen and senators who were elected by smaller localized factions. It is also believed that his office he also believed that his office was above party politics. As a result, instead of choosing party favorites for members of his cabinet, he chose people that he saw fit for the roles and people that he also thought he could control. This was, of course, with the exception of Vice President John C. Calhoun, who was elected on a separate ballot, as was the custom at the time. The two most notable members in the cabinet, aside from Calhoun, were Martin Van Buren, who was appointed Secretary of State, and John Eaton, who was appointed Secretary of War. And it was the appointment of John Eaton that would be the catalyst for one of the first sex scandals that would ever impact the presidential administration. Jackson had made a large misstep in this appointment, and his presidency did not get off to a good start as a result. The first two years of Jackson's presidency would be dominated by the scandal known today as the Petticoat Affair, or also the Eaton Affair. John Eaton, prior to being appointed Secretary of War, had been a senator from Tennessee and a friend of Andrew Jackson. When he would travel to Washington for his senatorial duties, he would stay at a hotel called the Franklin House. The daughter of the owner of the hotel was a beautiful woman named Peggy O'Neill. Peggy O'Neill was an attractive and charming woman who also happened to be married to a man named John Timberlake, who was a purser in the Navy. One day word came back that her husband had committed suicide while at sea. Instead of mourning the death of her husband in the proper time frame, Peggy quickly turned around and remarried, and her new husband was none other than John Eaton. Washington social circles became awash with gossip that Peggy and John Eaton had had an affair while she was still married, and that her husband had found out about the affair, and that was the reason that he committed suicide. From that point forward, John and Peggy Eaton became social outcasts, specifically Peggy, who is seen as an adulterer and a whore by all the other women in Washington society. After Eaton was appointed Secretary of War by Jackson, the scandal came to a head. Every single cabinet member's wife snubbed Peggy Eaton, especially Floride Calhoun, the wife of Vice President John C. Calhoun, who led the charge in the shaming of Peggy Eaton. This friction carried over into cabinet business. John Eaton challenged the men in his cabinet, stating that they were responsible for the behavior of their wives. The cabinet, as a result, became paralyzed by the infighting, and it was torn apart by the affair. Jackson, for his part, sided with John and Peggy Eaton, as he saw how she was being treated as a replay of the way that his own wife had been treated during the election. There was no way that he was going to allow what happened to his wife to happen again, and he firmly defended Peggy Eaton and her honor. The cabinet became so divided over the issue that Martin Van Buren, himself a widower and thus with no woman involved, saw the only way to resolve the issue was to have all the cabinet members resign. 
Van Buren convinced John Eaton to resign from his post, and then Van Buren himself resigned as well, signaling the rest of the cabinet members to do the same. Soon, every single cabinet member, with the exception of Postmaster General, had either resigned themselves or been dismissed by Jackson himself. Van Buren had proved himself a loyal Jacksonian, having made himself a martyr and an example so that Jackson could bring in new cabinet members and focus on the true work of the president. Jackson is noted to have toasted after the affair ended, quote, to the next cabinet, may they all be bachelors or leave their wives at home, end quote. Clipped from the Star and Banner, Tuesday, February 21st, 1832. Petticoat Affair. There resided in Washington for many years a highly respectable physician, Dr. Craven, a native of New Jersey who was a communicant of Mr. Campbell's church, and in all respects a man of the most unblemished character and standing. From this gentleman, Mr. Campbell had learned that Mrs. Timberlake, whose husband had been at sea for more than a year, had a miscarriage, on which occasion he had been called upon in his professional capacity. This fact, thus known to Mr. Campbell, in addition to the general reputation of Mrs. Timberlake, now Mrs. Eaton in Washington, led him to suppose that it was a duty to his own congregation, to the Society of Washington, and not less to General Jackson himself, to let him know before Major Eaton was installed into his cabinet something of the character of the woman he had married, lest the example of such a woman, aided by the power and influence of high station, might cause a deep and lasting injury to the morals of society. Actuated by these reviews, Mr. Campbell waited upon a very particular and intimate friend of General Jackson, the General E.S. Eli, then at Washington, and requested him to make known to the general, in the most delicate manner he could, such particulars as might be necessary to enable him to understand this difficulty. Jackson went on to establish more harmonious formal cabinets in the future, but he also started to rely on an informal group of advisors that came to be known as the Kitchen Cabinet. This group of men, of whom Van Buren was a key part, as well as John Overton, who was Jackson's business partner in the 1790s, was relied upon heavily by Jackson throughout the rest of his time in office, as he trusted their input as well as their feedback when he was contemplating policy decisions and political action. In the year 1820, during the presidency of James Monroe, a law was passed called the Tenure of Office Act. This law limited how long appointed office holders could be in their position and authorized the president to remove and appoint office holders whenever or wherever he saw appropriate. Early on in his presidency, Jackson began to exercise and enforce this law to its full power as he thought lengthier tenures in office led to corruption. Jackson sought immediately to purge the government of all the corruption that made it toxic, and he launched several presidential investigations into all cabinet offices and departments. He strengthened embezzlement laws, and he sought to improve government accounting practices. He wanted money to be completely eliminated from the sway of politics. In line with this effort, he went to work 
removing individuals appointed to government positions by prior administrations. Rotation of office, he felt, was a guiding principle in a republic, which also prevented the development of a corrupt bureaucracy. To give you an idea of how strongly Jackson exercised this power, a comparison is needed. George Washington and John Adams each replaced only nine federal officials while they were in office. Thomas Jefferson replaced 39 federal officials. James Madison replaced five. James Monroe replaced nine. And John Quincy Adams replaced two. Andrew Jackson, by the time it was all said and done, replaced 919 federal officials. Jackson then replaced these officials with individuals that were loyal to the Democratic Party, as well as genuine patriots. Jackson, of course, would like to have thought that he appointed these individuals based on merit alone, but he knew the truth was that the political realities of Washington forced him to make partisan appointments. Regardless of the realities of some of his appointments, he knew that the vast majority of them were people that would execute his policies with energy and vigor, and this he was okay with. He is known to have said when asked about his aggressive removal of federal officials and the perceived replacement of them with party loyalists and friends, to this he responded, quote, to the victor go the spoils, and thus the birth of the spoils system in American politics. This was ultimately not what Jackson envisioned for the country's political system, but his actions nonetheless set a precedent for all presidents that followed. Andrew Jackson's presidency marked a new epoch in the United States' relations with Native Americans. Since the birth of the nation, and for many years even before this, Native Americans and American settlers had clashed culturally, militarily, and philosophically. These differences had led to many violent exchanges between the two peoples, the Fort Mims Massacre and the Battle of Horseshoe Bend being perfect examples. Each of Jackson's predecessors had to deal with this issue in one form or another, but each of them chose to not take any type of solid action to resolve the issues. They instead, much like their approach to slavery, felt like time would naturally bring about a solution. In fact, in the early 1800s, tribes such as the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and the Seminole had started to adopt the attributes of Anglo-European settlers, such as Christianity, centralized government and literacy. As a result of this adoption and culture, these five tribes became known as the Five Civilized Tribes and had established autonomous nations within the country's borders. But Jackson felt like this was only delaying the inevitable. He had seen the wars and the blood up close during his military days, and he knew that something had to be done to try and solve the core problem. And as settlers pushed further and further west into the interior of the country, the conflicts grew more and more intense. On May 26, 1830, in Andrew Jackson's first major legislative victory, he signed into law the Indian Removal Act, which authorized the president to negotiate treaties with Native Americans to buy their lands in the east in exchange for lands further west and outside of the existing borders of the country at that time. This piece of legislation also marked the new Democratic Party's emergence into national politics. Why Jackson pushed for the Indian Removal Act has been a great source of controversy for the last almost 200 years. Jackson is noted to have thought that this was the only way to preserve the Native Americans' way of life. 
And if he didn't do something, they would fade from the earth, either through assimilation into white culture or through war. But then other truths that were put forward were, gold had been discovered on Cherokee land, and their fertile land was also being needed to produce cotton for a country and world that demanded it. But whatever his personal reasoning, the Indian Removal Act was passed, and a few years later, during Martin Van Buren's presidency, the removal of the Native American population was carried out. 7,000 armed soldiers were sent to remove the Native Americans from their ancestral lands, freeing up roughly 25 million acres of land for white settlement. At the end of it all, more than 45,000 Native Americans were forced to walk west to lands in Oklahoma that had been set aside for them. 4,000 Native Americans died during the march. The path they walked was named the Trail of Tears as a result. The Cherokee Nation did in fact try and protest this forced relocation through the legal system. And in one famous case that went all the way to the Supreme Court in Worcester versus Georgia, Chief Justice John Marshall did rule that Georgia could not impose its laws upon Cherokee tribal lands. Andrew Jackson's supposed response to this decision was, quote, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it, end quote. Whether or not Jackson said this is much debated, but nevertheless, the Indian Removal Act and its subsequent execution remains one of the darkest times in American history and is considered by many to be an absolute stain. On it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The legacy of Andrew Jackson and his presidency.
The nullification crisis, or secession crisis, was another notable event that took place during the first term of Andrew Jackson's presidency. Since before the Union, the country had been divided between the urban and industrialized states in the North, such as New York and Massachusetts, and the rural and agrarian states in the South, such as Virginia and South Carolina. And this divide was caused by many things, such as views on slavery and structure of government. But the divide between North and South came to a head early on in Jackson's tenure. Just before he had taken office, the Tariff of 1828 was passed by John Quincy Adams. This tariff came to be known as the Tariff of Abominations in the South. The reason being that the tariff, or the tax on imported goods, was originally created to protect industry in the United States from European goods that could be imported at much cheaper prices. The Tariff of Abominations thus raised the price on imported goods from Europe by almost 60% in some cases. Southern planners were outraged at this, as they were now being forced to buy goods from northern manufacturers at significantly higher prices than they had paid before. Essentially, the tariff was seen as a way to enrich the northern states at the expense of the southern states. The reaction to this tariff in the South was severe, especially in South Carolina. South Carolina officials, supported by Vice President John C. Calhoun, decided that they had had enough, and they declared their right to nullify federal laws passed that went against their own interests. Basically, they were saying that they were not going to abide by nor enforce certain federal laws that hurt the state. In addition to this, they stated that if the federal government tried to force them to abide by the tariff or other laws they deemed harmful to them, then South Carolina would secede from the Union altogether. Jackson was outraged. He personally agreed with them on the tariff issue. But before all else, he supported a strong union between all states. He states clearly that the Constitution made the United States a nation and not a league, and any state that tried to secede from that union would meet with dire consequences. During the crisis, a now famous event took place at a dinner that was being held to commemorate the birthday of Thomas Jefferson. It was a who's who of Washington elite in attendance. During the post-dinner toasts, Andrew Jackson stood and in a booming voice stated, Our federal union, it must be preserved, which was a clear challenge to his vice president, John C. Calhoun, who is now supporting nullification and secession for his home state of South Carolina. John C. Calhoun then stood up and responded to Jackson's toast by saying, The union, next to our liberty, most dear. The gauntlet had been thrown down, and Jackson was in the fight to win it. Calhoun ultimately resigned from his office as vice president, becoming the first man to ever do so. Jackson threatened to raise an army to enforce the tariff by way of military force if needed. Jackson even had Congress pass a bill called the Force Bill, which allowed him to use military force if needed to preserve the Union. The nation was on the edge of its seat to see who ultimately would win out, Jackson or South Carolina. But before military force was exercised, Congress passed another tariff called the Compromise Tariff, which greatly reduced the original tariff of abominations. South Carolina accepted the new tariff and stood down in its threat to secede from the Union. The crisis had been averted, and Jackson came out the victor. From that point forward, John C. Calhoun joined Henry Clay as one of his mortal political enemies, and they would all soon meet again. 
Jackson's first term in office proved to be a wild and raucous four years. But it's important to note here that this is exactly how Jackson liked it. He famously said of himself, quote, compound his love of the fight with his love of country and the people within it. And Jackson made for a very formidable foe with a killer combination. His second term in office would be no different. And it kicked off with a good tangle over the existence of the Second Bank of the United States, which became the primary issue in the election of 1832. Bank veto from the Pittsburgh Weekly Gazette, Friday, July 27, 1832. In supporting the protective system, we have been active to the extent of our ability and in like manner, we have been zealous in pointing out to our readers the great importance of the Bank of the United States to the interest of the nation. Sufficient has been given in this paper from time to time, as we have good reason to believe, to convince a very unprejudiced mind of the correctness of those positions. First, that to the Bank of the United States we are indebted for our present wholesome currency, which enables any individual to remit to the extreme portion of the Union money which will be there received at par. Second, that to the Bank we are indebted for giving our currency a credit abroad, whereby we can remit funds to Europe without loss. Third, that to the bank, the merchant, the storekeeper, the mechanic, and indeed all classes of society are mainly indebted for facilities in business, convenience in money transactions, and confidence in commercial intercourse. Fourth, that to destroy the bank will be to introduce among us a prostration of business distrust in money transactions, a villainous paper currency, contemporaneous with a heavy loss in all business matters, and failures and bankruptcies without number. And fifth, that a continuation of the bank in view of these palpable correct propositions is desired by nearly all the reflecting and unprejudiced men of the country. In 1791, Alexander Hamilton had pushed for and established the first bank of the United States. Hamilton believed that a national bank was imperative to a stable economy and the improvement of the nation's overall credit system. Its 20-year charter expired in 1811. But in 1816, James Madison chartered the second bank of the United States to try and help the nation's economy recover from the damage done during the War of 1812. In January of 1832, the Second Bank of the United States' president, a man named Nicholas Biddle, was encouraged to submit to Congress a request to renew the bank's charter, which was set to expire in 1836. Biddle was asking for the renewal four years in advance of its expiration. This was an unusually timed request, unless one digs just a little bit deeper. Now, Andrew Jackson, as we know, he hated banks and he hated everything that they stood for. He thought the men who ran the Second Bank of the United States held way too much power over the nation's economy, and these men were not elected by the people. For these reasons, Jackson was eager to see the bank's charter expire. 
Nicholas Biddle had, however, conspired with Jackson's opponent in the upcoming presidential election of 1832, none other than Jackson's bitter rival, Henry Clay. The Pittsburgh Gazette, Monday, October 31st, 1836. From the New York American, The Currency. The Globe publishes a correspondence between two of the directors of the Bank of America and the Secretary of the Treasury, which will be found below. The objects of these directors were twofold. First, that of inducing the Secretary to order the mint to provide itself with specie, either from Havana or Jamaica, and offering the services of the Bank of America, free of charge, to obtain such specie. And second, to produce a suspension or postponement of the Treasury warrants impending over the city for periods of 30 days in some cases, and in others of three and six months. The Secretary replied that the Director of the Mint is already authorized to take all proper steps for keeping up the supply of bullion, and refers the New York gentleman to him. As to postponements, the Secretary, after an exposition of his toils and labors in preparing the distribution of the surplus, and in homily about wild speculations in lands and etc., says he will postpone such drafts as he can, thirty days, and that all having relation to the distribution of a portion of the surplus on the 1st of January shall be postponed till that day. He adds explicitly that no orders have been given in any case to demand any portion of the Treasury warrants in specie, although it must be understood that all Treasury warrants are payable in specie if the holder choose to demand it. The real difficulty, after all, about the mode in which the payment of those Treasury warrants is exacted may lie not with the responsible Secretary of the Treasury, but the irresponsible agent, unknown to the laws, whom the resentments of General Jackson against the U.S. Bank selected, because of his animosity, gratified even at the expense of perjury against the same institution. Moreover, the specie circular, which it is now said will not be in any degree modified by the President, causes or has caused such a demand for specie as to derange the ordinary course of the currency. Upon this topic, however, we shall have more to say hereafter. And they had conspired to keep the bank alive despite Jackson's views. Biddle and Clay thought they had Jackson in a no-win situation by submitting the renewal request when they did. They were under the impression that Jackson only had two choices. He would either have to grant the renewal charter for the bank giving it another 20 years of life, or he could veto the bank's renewal request and pay at the polls in the upcoming election, given Henry Clay the presidency. Basically, they thought Jackson had to choose between renewing the bank charter and a second term in office. But Jackson knew his place with the American people, and he rolled the dice. On July 4th of 1832, a perfectly timed event, when the bank's recharter bill came across his desk, Jackson vetoed the bill immediately. Biddle was in shock. He then thought that Jackson had sealed his fate in the upcoming election. But Jackson was too strong and too popular to be defeated. And when the election of 1832 was over, Jackson had again won in a landslide, taking 55% of the popular vote and carrying 16 of the then 24 states. Jackson had won on both fronts and Biddle and Clay were defeated all around. But Jackson took it one step further to really make Biddle pay for his underhanded actions and his devious calculations. To make the Second Bank of the United States virtually impotent immediately following the election, Jackson ordered all federal deposits removed from the bank and reallocated to smaller state banks across the country. 
And just like that, Biddle and the Second Bank of the United States were a thing of the past, and the bank's formal charter quietly expired three years later. Now, this move by Jackson did, by most economists' views, lead to easy access to credit and wide speculation, which, in addition to Jackson's specie circular, which mandated all government lands be purchased in money backed by gold and silver. Jackson's actions led to the Panic of 1837 and a depression during Van Buren's administration. The American economy would not recover fully from this depression until around 1841. But despite this, Jackson still stood by his decision as the right thing to do, given that a national bank was not in line with republicanism as a creed. As a result of his removal of the deposits from the bank, Jackson became the first and only president to ever be censured by Congress. But a few years later, the censure was expunged when the Democrats won back control. Here again, we see Jackson victorious. But it should be noted here that Jackson was fiscally very aggressive on budget cutting, and he was debt averse. In fact, Jackson is still the first and only president to have paid off the national debt in its entirety, and he did so in 1835. This is the only time in United States history that this was ever done. Andrew Jackson was also the first president in United States history to be physically attacked while in office. Jackson had at one point ordered the dismissal of a man named Robert B. Randolph from the Navy for embezzlement. Soon after he was dismissed, Andrew Jackson was in Alexandria, Virginia, laying the cornerstone for a monument near the grave of Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother. Afterward, while he sat at a table on a steamboat excursion, Robert Randolph came through the crowd and leaped at Jackson, punching him in the face. Most who witnessed the event stated that after being hit, Jackson just stared at Randolph while his face bled until Randolph was wrestled to the ground and then dragged away. Jackson later said that had he been standing instead of sitting when Randolph attacked, that Randolph would never have moved with life from the tracks he stood in. Two years after this event, Jackson became the first president ever to be involved in an assassination attempt. In January of 1835, Jackson was leaving the Capitol building through the East Portico when a man named Richard Lawrence approached Jackson, pulling out a pistol as he got closer. The pistol, being aimed at Jackson's head, misfired. Lawrence then pulled out a second pistol, and he aimed it at Jackson. The second pistol misfired as well. Jackson then attacked Lawrence, beating him with his cane until his attendants could pull him off the man. Lawrence, an out-of-work house painter, stated his motives for trying to kill Jackson were so money would be more plenty. He was later deemed insane and institutionalized. The People's Press and Wilmington Advertiser, February 4th, 1835, attempted assassination. On Friday last, while the President of the United States was at the Capitol attending the funeral of the Honorable Orrin R. Davis of South Carolina, a man by the name of Richard Lawrence, a painter residing in this city, made an attempt to assassinate him by snapping in quick succession two loaded pistols at his breast. Fortunately, the percussion caps both collapsed without the pistols going off, or probably from the near proximity of the villain to the President, the result might have proved fatal. The firmness displayed by the president upon this occasion was truly characteristic of his bravery, so often exhibited in scenes of peril and of danger. 
and the prompt and energetic action of the persons around him immediately secured and disarmed the wretch, who had dared, thus wantonly and without the least provocation so far as has yet been discovered, to lift his murderous hand against the life of a fellow being, the Chief Magistrate of the United States. Following this incident, due to public curiosity, the two guns that misfired were tested. In every single test, the guns fired without issue. The chances of both guns misfiring were said to be 125,000 to 1. This incident was further proof that Jackson was protected by divine providence, and this added to the legend that had steadily grown around him throughout his life. Despite the tremendous amount of energy and focus that Andrew Jackson exerted engaged in domestic policy and governing, he actually did quite a bit in regards to foreign affairs. When Jackson took office, there was a number of spoliation claims outstanding that had gone unsettled for a number of years. The most important of these claims was with the French government, which had dated back to the Napoleonic era. The French Navy had in fact captured and sent American ships to ports all over Europe, specifically in Spain, where the crews of these American ships were forced to labor without any formal charge for wrongdoing or action. And again, this was essentially kidnapping, and the lingering claims caused a tremendous amount of tension between the United States and the French. When negotiations with the French for reparation seemed near hopeless, Jackson persisted in his press of the French government, and working alongside William Reeves, his minister to France, they were able to sign a reparations treaty, which ordered France to pay the United States $5 million in reparations for their actions. Jackson and his administration also settled a number of other spoliation claims with Denmark, Portugal, and Spain. Jackson's State Department also worked extremely hard to open up trade, as well as re-establish trade with foreign powers, so that American exports could find new markets adding to the overall prosperity of the nation. Jackson negotiated trade agreements with Russia, Turkey, Spain, and Great Britain. After these trade agreements were established, both imports and exports increased considerably. Jackson also tried to open up trade with Japan and China, but was not able to pry into these markets. However, the effort itself is reflective of his views of an American economic expansion and a potential growing global economy. Slavery, as we know, had been a contentious issue in the United States since even before the inception of the Republic. The slavery conversation ebbed and flowed in the undercurrent of every administration. But during the summer of 1835, the slavery issue caught fire again as northern abolitionists started to send anti-slavery tracts and literature into the South. Southern planners were outraged at this, as they stated the actions could potentially cause riots and violence. Southerners demanded that the post office ban these tracts from being sent as a result. Jackson, trying to balance the demands of northern abolitionists and southern planners, gave southern postmasters discretionary powers to send or not send these anti-slavery tracts. Jackson also suggested that the tracts only be mailed to those who subscribe to the literature as a solution. In the end, southern postmasters simply refused to mail the literature. In that same year, though, another slavery controversy took place when northern abolitionists sent a petition to Congress demanding an end to the slave trade and slavery in the nation's capital. This again infuriated southern planners, who stated that Congress had no right to interfere with slavery. 
Jackson encouraged a resolution which was in line with Southern sentiments, and the slavery issue was swept under the rug yet again. And as we know, the failure to deal with the slavery issue for the first nearly hundred years of the Republic would cause the nation to erupt into a civil war in 1861 and deeply divide the country. When Jackson initially took office, he was opposed to all federally funded scientific explorations. But after his first term concluded, Jackson began to think about his legacy in this regard. He had admired and seen the value in the Lewis and Clark expedition under Jefferson's presidency. And so in 1836, he signed into law the United States Exploring Expedition Act. One notable accomplishment that came out of this effort was the USS Porpoise's circumnavigation of the world, which mapped the Southern Ocean, which today is known as the Antarctic Ocean, and it confirmed the existence of the continent of Antarctica. In 1837, after two productive and controversial terms in office, Andrew Jackson, then 70 years old and suffering from ill health, retired to his beloved plantation, the Hermitage. Before he left Washington, he had essentially been able to pick his successor in office, which he designated to be his vice president and proven supporter, Martin Van Buren. Van Buren won the election of 1836 in a landslide, providing another solid testimonial to the American people's belief and love of Andrew Jackson. After his retirement, he remained an influential and controversial figure in American politics, and the age that his name defined, the age of Jackson and the Jacksonian era, would transcend even his own life lasting till around 1850. Andrew Jackson had been in poor health for a number of years as a result of his rough and violent life. In fact, many of his detractors, as well as supporters, believed that he would die early on in office as he used to cough up blood often as a result of the bullet that was left in his body after the famous duel with Charles Dickinson nearly 30 years before. It was often joked that Jackson rattled when he walked as there was another bullet in his back from a gunfight that took place during the Creek War. At 6 p.m. on June 8th of 1845, at the ripe old age of 78, Andrew Jackson died in his bed at the Hermitage. The cause of death was noted to be chronic tuberculosis, dropsy, and heart failure. Jackson and his wife, Rachel, never had any children of their own. But Jackson had a very strong paternal instinct and he enjoyed the company of extended family and friends. And despite their not having biological children, Jackson and his wife adopted two sons, some sources say three sons, as well as acted as guardian to eight other children. Jackson and his wife adopted one of Rachel's brother's children. They named him Andrew Jackson Jr., and he went on to manage the hermitage during Jackson's time in office and was the sole heir of Jackson's entire estate upon his death. But even more interesting and demonstrative of Jackson's heart, after one particularly violent battle with the Creek Indians, Jackson found an orphaned baby whose parents had both been killed in the battle. Jackson adopted the Indian boy and sent him to the hermitage that he and Rachel could raise the boy. Jackson also planned to send Lincoya, as he came to be known, to West Point for schooling. But tragically, Lincoya died of tuberculosis at the age of 16. Andrew Jackson remains to this day one of the most controversial and interesting presidents to ever walk across the American stage. Even today, his image on the American $20 bill honoring him is debated 
given his policies and controversies. He was an orphaned boy who became a self-made man and rose to the high point of power on his own gifts and merits. He was a war hero, orchestrating one of the greatest battle victories in all of American history. He was the first president to come from the frontier and then made himself the people's president. He's a walking case study in complexity of personality and contradictions. He was a notorious gambler and spent loosely, yet he was ruthless in regards to budgets and paid off the national debt. He massacred a thousand Creek Indians at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and forced thousands upon thousands of Native Americans from their ancestral lands. Yet when he found an orphaned Indian baby near a battlefield, he adopted the boy and raised him as his son. He fought for and represented the voice of the common people in the United States. Yet he owned 300 slaves throughout his lifetime and never did a thing to advance the cause of freedom of African Americans. Perhaps James Parton, one of Jackson's earliest biographers, described him best when he said, quote, He was a democratic autocrat, an urbane savage, an atrocious saint, end quote. I think that Andrew Jackson is one of the most interesting and, again, complex presidents that the United States has ever had, certainly the, one of the most controversial. For one, I don't believe that he would ever come close to being elected in this day and age, given the political scrutiny that a candidate or a president undergoes in, 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 this, uh, in this media environment, the 24-hour news cycle. I don't believe anybody like him with his temperament or his uh, volatility could have ever or could ever in this day and age be elected president again. To lose your family that young and to be an orphan in the world, I do admire his ability to rise out of that, um, to recognize what personal characteristics that he had that, that gave him the power and the charisma, etc., and, the, and then to harness those, those gifts to rise in the world through law, into politics, in the military, as a president. I do admire that about him because I think that takes a tremendous amount of mental strength to go, to go through that type of trauma and then to recover from it in the dramatic manner that he did. That is something I do admire about Andrew Jackson. What I don't admire, of course, is I certainly believe that he was on the wrong side of slavery. I certainly believe that he was on the wrong side of, of his policies with, uh, in regards to Native Americans. I understand where he said that he thought by removing the Native Americans to outside of the borders of the country at that time was maybe one of the only ways to preserve their way of life. I get that. But I still can't see how somebody could take somebody from the land that they've always inhabited, where they've buried parents, grandparents, etc. Um, how somebody could be so cavalier, maybe is is a, is a word for it, and just decide to we're just going to we're just going to offer you this land out west, and um, you got to walk. That those, the slavery and the Native American issues and how he handled those, or how or lack of handling those in the slavery case. Um, are, are aspects of him that I don't admire. All in all, do I feel like he was right for the time? I think, yeah, uh, given everything that was happening in the country, I think that somebody like him, the country was in its nascent stages of still forming. I mean, this is the first 50 years of the Republic still. Um, 60 years of the Republic by the time he became president. Still maybe searching for an American identity. I think what he did at the Battle of New Orleans, solidifying that national identity and adding to that national identity and causing that wave of patriotism to sweep the country. I think that that did a lot 
for the early republic in bringing America and the United States together. So again, that's something else that I admire about him. But I think like anybody, I think like anybody, he has his, he had his faults and he had his blessings and um, he was just another man trying to make his way in the world given what, what he had been given. And ultimately, he, he left his mark on American politics and the United States as a whole. Andrew Jackson being on the $20 bill in, in, in the United States, he's actually been on a number of other bills as well. I believe it was the five, um, the 50, and, and a couple others as well throughout history. So he's been honored a few times on the currency of the United States at present, the $20 bill. Do I believe that he should be honored in that way? No, I don't. Not for his things such as slavery or how he treated the Native American population. Not because of that. I simply believe that there are other presidents who could be there in his place. James Madison, for one, for pretty much his construction of the Constitution. I think that he could be honored in that way. I think Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was on the $2 bill for a long time. $2 bill is really not in circulation, or you don't see it in circulation all that much. Perhaps he could be on maybe the $20 bill, or or at least a, a piece of currency that is used more regularly. But again, I think there are a number of different people throughout American history that maybe have have a stronger or could be honored before Andrew Jackson is honored. And let me leave it there. Just again, shooting from the hip to think of a couple other people that could be honored on our currency before Andrew Jackson. And I know that this was asked in a Republican debate at one point, and I don't want to think that I'm, I'm playing off that in any way, shape, or form. Just honestly thinking about who should the, who should the country honor before a man like Andrew Jackson, who did a lot for the nation, but again, other people did as well. I, honest, I certainly think a Rosa Parks for what she accomplished in Alabama and for uh, starting to end segregation. Uh, Martin Luther King would be another person that we could look to that could replace an Andrew Jackson. James Madison, like I said. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt for all that he did in, in, in relation to conservation of natural resources, which is something that's very important to me. So a number of other individuals. I wouldn't take Jackson off simply because of the controversies of his presidency or of his history, but I would take him off in order to honor other people in American history who played a significant role in the formation of our country. That would be why I would remove Andrew Jackson and perhaps think of replacing him with somebody else. Please, I hope this isn't perceived as any type of conceit or self-serving, but I'm hoping that's... Okay, well, that's fine. I'm going to say it anyway, damn it. Um, you know, my hope is that listeners that listen to your show will be curious about some of the other work that I've done and listen, maybe go to the Giants of History. So I would simply ask, make me sound good. <laughs> if that, can I, am I allowed to say that? Thank you. Thank you. I hope it was uh, to your standard and what you had envisioned. And I hope that the finished product uh, you are proud of as well and are happy that you allowed me to. Uh, I know I'm happy that you allowed me to do this and. And to, um, I guess, join uh, in your enterprise, uh, I hope that you're also uh, happy that you chose me as well. So, Nah, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course I am. <laughs> 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 no, listen it's, listen, it's been a long time in, in the coming, but we got there. Hello from a sunny East Bay in California. 
Yes, I have not only uh, recorded but edited this show all in the United States of America. And uh, just for added uh, authenticity, you can hear the su- you can hear the wind blowing um, out here in the East Bay. Because as always, I've edited this show in a coffee shop, and the coffee shop I've recorded it in today is one called Abor, um, as I said, in Oakland. First off, I'd like to say thank you to JT for an excellent narration on the life of President Andrew Jackson. If you've got the time, please go over to the Giants of History podcast and listen to his show because, quite frankly, it's brilliant. So there's a big plug for JT. A special and big thanks need to go out to all Facebook followers who contributed to this episode it's one of the great joys of actually doing this show and having the facebook group that if i put out a request for people to do readings uh people not only do them but do them absolutely excellently well um, and a special 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 thank has to go out to adam vanami over in denver colorado who not only marshaled some of the troops to do readings but also found the clippings for the readings in the show so thank you for all of your help and assistance adam yes i am now over here in the united states of america working for a while i wonder if you could possibly help me to uh, keep mind body and soul together but also the podcast regular by going over to 10 usp com that's one zero usp.com to go and donate you can either do that by hitting the donate button and do a one-off donation or you can go on to patreon.com and donate for two dollars or five dollars um, a show generally i try and do one a month uh, that would really help me with the some of the expenses that i'm incurring whilst being over here in the united states and also help me get in the shows out if you want to email me you can email me at royfield which is spelled r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com or conversely you can find me on twitter where i'm simply at royfield uh, the facebook group is 10 american presidents and you can go on and i think there's some, some kind of 500 kind of likers on there so you can go and commune with them and talk about the american presidency and also uh, the shows i think that's just about it um listen out on on social media for more things that i will be doing soon and but again thank you again to jt thank you for listening and i'll see you all again soon mr pop Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States.